I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barn and Tanonari do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, <laughs> number 13, we're going solo. Unlucky 13, unlucky 13, lucky, lucky, lucky 13, uh, full disclosure, it's Oscar night, uh, apparently, <laughs> but I, we, we're I play rumors to that effect. <laughs> We, we're we not doing red carpet coverage and we don't know any of the winners, but I just thought I'd mention that. So that's what everybody's talking about right now is it's Oscar night, but not for this podcast. This is. Well, I doubt seriously if I'm even going to watch the Oscars. It's just, we got other things to do, like playing golf with our daughter tonight. So we're playing miniature nut golf tonight with, with Nikki, which will be great on the Oculus. Yes, it will. And other than that, going to just kind of kick back. We've got a very busy week in front of us because we have that pilot that you did the first draft on after carefully plotting it uh, together, but you did that first draft, no question about that. And I've got the pleasure of doing the easy part, which is going back through and 
tweaking and so forth. Well, I can't wait to see what you do. Yeah, well, you know, there aren't any big things that I see. There are some things that have to do with some technical things, some things that I, I told you about. And I want to make those corrections. There's tweaking to dialogue. We're going to want to read the dialogue out loud. It's one of the fastest ways of seeing whether or not your dialogue works is just reading it out loud. Can yeah. it actually be said? I remember, uh, I guess it was either Harrison Ford or Alec Guinness on Star Wars said, oh, I guess it was Harrison Ford said to George Lucas, you know, he was not happy with the, with the, with the dialogue. He said, you can write this stuff, George, but you can't speak it. You know, that, that you want to make sure that the dialogue sounds like something somebody could say if they were smarter than you and had more time to think about what they were about to say. So there's, there's a heightened reality and compression that is definitely, yeah. if you listen to people, the way people actually talk, you know, even if you're talking about educated people, you go to a coffee shop near a university or something like that. No, and most of it is just garbage. People don't really speak as well and as clearly and crisply as you need them to in order for dialogue to work. No, and there are so many levels to the dialogue. So the first level is the thing itself, right? Where you might say something, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'll lose you, which is very on the nose dialogue. And, it, and while it is something that people say in real life, in, in a film or television show, it can sound very on the nose. So what you do is you know that that's sort of placeholding dialogue sometimes. That I know that's the intent of the dialogue, but when I reread it, I might go back and say, oh, what's a, you know, a more sideways way of saying this? And sometimes it might be something like, where are you going? You know, I mean, it's the same intent, but it's not as on the nose. So, and that's maybe not the best example, but something that is conveying that idea and that emotion without being on the nose. Well, that example can be perfect given a situation where the person is clearly afraid that their partner is cheating on them. Mm -hmm. Is about to step out of them or is about to move out. Then a relatively innocent comment like, like, where are you going? Would be played by the actors to reveal a subtext. That's the thing to, one thing to remember is that actors don't act the text. They act the subtext. What's between the lines? What's between the words? If you give them that room and trust that they are artists, then you don't beat the audience over the head with the comment, you allow the actors to fill it in. Now, if you have a line that could honestly be taken multiple ways, you might want to give an indication to the actor of oh, yeah. what's actually intended by that line. But for most of the times, you don't want to over-direct. You know, your, your job is not to direct the actors. It's the director's job to direct the actors. And a lot of good directors will let the actors bring their craft to it. You know, that, that if that actor is going to be living with your role for a week or a month or a year, they're going to find things in your, they should find things in the dialogue that you did not intend because you can't think of everything that's going to happen and every interaction and the way all these things are going to work. Trust that your actors are going to work some of these things out. The director will work some of these things out and give them room to play. I should say here that we do not have a guest this week. We're going to be talking about Hollywood horror stories. But as we do in every podcast, we like to start with just a little bit about what's been going on in our lives. And we have had an exciting week. Steve has a baby book in his hands. Yay! Yay! Yay. You can see it. It's finally here. I've been working on this book for 10 years. I've been trying to get this done. And finally, John Jennings at Macroscope. Megascope. Megascope. At Megascope. Rose about uh, that, and let's do it again. Okay. I've been working on this book for 10 years. I've been trying to get it done for 10 years. 
And John Jennings at Megascope is the one who had the confidence, the faith that it could work for his company and made it possible and, and, and found our artist, Brian Christopher Moss, and my collaborator, Dr. Charles Johnson, and I did the stories and he wrote the afterward. And I'm just, I'm just so happy, you know, you it, should it, be. It's, it's finally here and it's, well, we've talked about it before and it'll be published on the 12th, I think of April. So it's just like two weeks in two weeks now, it'll be out. And absolutely do. We'll talk more about it then, you know, perhaps when I have some reviews to go over, because one of the things that you have to deal with as a writer is, is how do you deal with reviews? positive ones and negative ones. And there are things that you can learn, but you, you don't want it. You don't want to get too cocky, nor do you want it to crush your heart. You know how I deal with reviews, especially on Amazon. You don't read them. I don't read that. Oh my gosh. Yes. There was (laughs) one time where I had a couple of situations. Uh, one was a review by someone I know. Ouch. Like a, a friend. We're still friends actually. And it was just kind of a harsh not me but kind of harsh kind of like the thing that you wish a friend would say to you privately as opposed to putting it up on amazon and that's just the reviewer's mindset and you know she had a reviewer hat on so that's what happened there and then the other uh time someone was complaining about my novel the good house having too many points of view and they said i'm surprised the dog didn't have a point of view and that has been rolling in my head rent-free, as I say, for years. And at the, just at a certain point, I was like, you know what, maybe reading these reviews is not for me. <laughs> that, and, and what I was immediately thinking was, would the dog's point of view have been useful? Because there are contexts in which a dog's point of view is useful. You know what? Well, they have, well, you know, as a golden retriever in almost every damn thing he writes. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it was just whatever. I mean, let me shake it off. Let me shake it off. Okay. Reviews. Obviously, it's great to hear the good reviews. And I am as good at taking notes as the next person. But there's something about it being in print, something about everyone seeing it that makes it especially tough to read. Yeah. You know, but it's to me, it's just it's part of the game. You know, the you know, art is self-expression, you know, your emotion plus your craft. But successful art has to create an emotional change in the consumer. You know, the reader, the viewer has to feel something. Hopefully they'll feel something similar to what you felt, what you intended in a a series of crescendos that take them to the place that you want them to go. So by the time they close the book or walk out of the movie, they're feeling something you wanted them to feel. And I think that, that that's a lot of our art goes towards trying to develop the skills and the self awareness to both have something to say and know how to say it. I think to that degree, you got to hear what people are saying. If you don't hear what they're saying, you don't know whether or not you spoke clearly. You know, you don't, you don't know. How do you know how to grow? So it's to a certain degree, you have to be ready to accept that pain, you know, and that pleasure. Cause hopefully you'll get more good reviews than bad ones. I literally, if it always happens, you know, go ahead. What? No, I was, I'm just thinking of a book where I literally don't think I've read a single review on Amazon. Oh. <laughs> it's like a summer, my short uh, like, And it's not because I'm afraid of bad reviews. I, I hear from people on social media, they're tweeting the cover, they like the book. But again, it's that, mm, I don't just, anyway, you're, you're right. It's a good way to grow, but I, I, I missed the boat on that one. <laughs> what are you going to be working on this week, huh? 
Well, now that we're getting close to the end of finishing that pilot, I'll be moving back to my very favorite thing in the world, not, which is finishing a pitch. Right. You know, it's not that I'm not excited about the work. I'm very excited about the work that we're This is a pitch for a completely different project. It's a completely different project. That you are being artfully vague about. Right now, I'm being artfully Got vague it. about it. But in any case, we, we started work on a pitch where we came up with a sort of a pilot outline. We got notes from the executives on, on, they were happy with it. I think they really were genuinely happy with the direction we had taken it. And obviously they also had more ideas for how to take it even uh, further down the road. So that's the next thing I'll be jumping in. It's, it's that thing of having, you know, multiple projects. If I was taking a look at other projects, we've got the soulmate course we're working on some taking some initial steps towards a, a, a course on parenting and ADHD child. There are short stories and scripts and this and that, you know, it's all a matter of seeing what all these things are that in any given day doing enough work that you're constantly moving forward, but not so much that you're feeling like your brain is fried, you know, and I need to have some way to organize everything. So index cards and, you know, post-it notes and and, you know, chalkboards and so forth and so on are all useful for that to keep stuff separated. But in any given day, it's just, what's the work right in front of me right now? What do I need to do right now today? We literally have meetings every morning where we go through our Slack. Every project we were working on, are working on, or potentially will be working on. <laughs> Slack is an organization program, if you don't. Yes, and I know a lot of you are using it in your offices. And if you haven't heard of it, check it out. Some people don't like it. Yeah. Uh, I like it. It's basically in, you know, an online file folder for a bunch of different projects. And, and it was a lifesaver for us because when things started getting busy for us a couple of years ago, we really needed a way to keep it all. It's true. Keep it all true. organized. I use uh, OneNote. I use Slack, I use Google Docs, you know, any number of different things each to, to try to keep things organized. So I'm not keeping it all in my head. If I'm keeping it all in my head, then, you know, there are limited, there, there's, there are finite compute cycles. But if I can get it out of my head and onto paper or into a program someplace, then I can look at it. It's like a, a to-do list. Yes, you have to remember to look at the to-do list. You have to remember to put something on the to-do list. But once you put it on the to-do list, all you have to do is remember to look at the list and there might be a dozen different things that otherwise you'd have to remember as individual items. Uh, I don't know about you, but my memory isn't good enough for that. I mean, uh, yeah. By the yeah. way, you're, I'm looking at you on television. You now. do know about hey, me, darling. <laughs> Actually, you do know quite a bit about, I'm just playing with my video filters for those of you who are on audio. So now I have it framed. I have a TV screen, uh, so it looks like I'm on TV. Which isn't a bad transition to the Hollywood horror stories no, portion of our podcast, now that I think about it. So we, I'm still just vibing. Well, because it just went live today. I'm still vibing on the Rodney Barnes interview that, that was last week for you all. And that was really good. Please, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't listen to it, stop this podcast right now. Go yeah. back, download it and listen to it. It was pure gold. It was pure. I mean, the candor. The just practical advice, I just, everything was really just listen to Rodney Barnes and, and, and then catch up with us later. Well, we did sort of hint at one of our Hollywood horror stories during uh, that podcast. In the beginning, it was like how it took us a year and a half to track down a director that we had developed a pitch with 
who went with us on rounds of pitching, by the way. So we went to several, a couple places, at least with him, three, four, maybe five places with this director and our team. And we sold it. I mean, the, the exact, the studio, it was an actual studio. It was like, yes, we want this. We just need the signature. And it took us a year and a half to get paid when the signature, when the contract is complete. Yeah. yeah. Sign it. So here we are, freelance writers, not rich, needing that money. It was a lot of money and we really needed it. And we could not get him to slow down long enough to sign the contract. And this wasn't just for an option, by the way. This was something where we were being hired to write the script. Also, our very first opportunity to write a script for a studio. So, so that's the money part. The option, you know, not so much, but that that payment, that first payment to, to commence, you know, whew, that was that was a horror story. It had a happy ending, as we mentioned in the last podcast, lawyers to the rescue. But, there, you know, well, tell us about the most humiliating part of all of this. If this is going to be a horror story, what was the ultimate horror? Well, those of you who've listened to the last episode know we had to track him down at his Hollywood Hall of Fame ceremony and just wave to try to be seen. You know, and there were other funny moments, like he'd pop up on AOL Messenger, <laughs> like his name would pop up out of the blue, and we'd jump on it, like, hey, how you doing? And like, fax it to my hotel and in, in another continent, and we're like, okay. Anyway, but, and really no ill intent. This is the thing of the story. Let me, let me expand the story a bit. I am quite certain that this director meant no ill intent. And even with just this little bubble of activity we're having, I can only imagine how overwhelming it is to be in the position he was in, director, actor, Oscar run-up, Oscar buzz, won an Oscar. I mean, so it wasn't like he was wasting his time. <laughs> he was in the middle of an Oscar-winning performance or whatever, but really, really tough for us little guys who, who just needed the money. We needed just to get started. You know, it's, it's important. I had a, a recent incident where a lady who I've known for some years sent me some material that she'd worked on. And then I got, sometime later, I got an email from her basically expressing disappointment that I had not responded. I had forgotten all about the initial email, I think because I had been out of the house when I, when I read it. I checked it on my phone. Oh, there's a, a note from such and such. I didn't know what it was. I didn't get back to it. And, and the next things that came along in my life covered it up. Now I got a, an email from her basically expressing a, a lot of disappointment and a certain amount of pain that I had ignored her. I'm sure that the director that we speak of had no idea at all of how painful his actions were to us. He was just living his life. He yeah. was taking care of things that were important. And it kept slipping his mind. So it's not that I think that these people are bad people at all, because I need to ask for understanding myself when I let something slide, right? You know, and just at, at the level that, that we're playing at, you know, because people who know you, you know, are, especially if they're feeling some insecurity, can very easily feel that you think you're too big for your britches now. You don't remember me now. Or, and if, if, by any chance, there's anything negative going on in their lives. If they're feeling diminished in some way, you know, like Tanara and I were in financial emergency 
So it wasn't just a, a feeling of being neglected. It was a feeling of being impoverished. You know, it, it, it generated genuine anger, you know, because there was fear there. So as you gain influence in Hollywood or success, be aware that your actions will have, will be magnified in terms of the way people react. If you do something nice to them, they're going to think, oh my God, nicest person in the world. And if you accidentally do something negative, they're going to think, well, he's an asshole, you know, because you loom larger. Not because our clean rating. <laughs> Just kidding. Go on. <laughs> not because you are larger, but because they're, they're studying you. They're looking at you closely. They care about you. They feel like they know you, you know, and if you're, if you're large in their lives, they would like to be large in yours. And it's difficult. I, I can see how, I can see how real stardom can be problematic for people. They, they treat you differently in such a way that you might start acting differently. Anyway, and, so, that, and that's a good segue actually and, too, because I, before I ask you about your, yeah, and I, I like, I like another one. If you can think of another one that you've got something that's more personal, that wasn't about the two of us, haven't you had one that, that hits you as an individual? Not as much because I really only started pitching after I met you, about, but, but, but I will, but let me say this, let me say this. Why do horror stories happen in Hollywood? I want to I want to start from that jumping off point because Rodney brought up so many great scenarios, well terrible scenarios actually in our last podcast uh, where you are in survival mode. So you're just taking anything. Right. Any any work you can get, you're just saying yes to everything. He said his agents are telling him, you know, you can say no to things. And trust me, if your agents are saying that, there's a problem because your agents are usually encouraging you to say yes. <laughs> I think that there are horror stories in Hollywood for the same reason you have horror stories in dating. Horror stories in any job, you know, because there are things, you know, there's this range from I had a wonderful date, a wonderful time, a wonderful day at work to it was absolutely crap. It just terrible. That's just life. That's why in the hero's journey, one of the steps is a confrontation with evil and you're defeated, followed by, you know, falling into the dark night of the soul, because that is a part of the process of growth. You're going to get knocked on your can. It's just going to happen. Make your peace with it. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta. And I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. 
The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine. Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And the stakes are so high. Talk to us about the stakes. The stakes are ridiculous in terms of the amount of money that could just fall into your lap if the right person says yes, if you write it the right way. It's like, you know, it's just, it's so intoxicating to dream. And, and then when you actually start getting those meetings, I, I saw a tweet from someone who was so excited that he was getting his first meet and greet with an executive. And that is huge. That is a huge thing to celebrate. But, you know, Steve is, is laughing because how many meet and greets yeah, <laughs> have like, we done? Uh, like, at a certain, you know, they don't, they don't often lead anywhere. That's the bottom line. I mean, we, we're at a point where we're not ready to start saying no to meet and greets, but we can see that point around the corner because you literally just don't have enough time in the day to keep meeting people and keep up with your writing. So I wish you, I'm very, every time you do a meeting, you have to kind of, you know, get your energy up. So it's like, you know, so you seem, you know, fun and, and, and and personable and, you know, all, all that good stuff. It's like, like I said, it's that first date situation. It is a lot. Except it's speed dating, you know, because you don't have that much time. You're going to be talking to them for an hour and they've talked to, they've done five other meetings that day. You've done other meetings that day. So it's, it's, it can be grotesque. In yeah. terms of, but you know, poor Rodney, I think, didn't he say he'd done like, you know, how many hundred, you know, Zoom meetings to promote yeah. uh, winning time? There's you know, that. You know, how many that day? You so, know, so it, it's, it's performance. It's performance. But it usually it, doesn't lead anywhere. It, it, those meetings, those meet and greets anyway, usually don't lead anywhere. Frankly, even uh, a deal usually doesn't lead anywhere except you're going to get paid for writing scripts but, but even if you get that signature like we did with that project we were pitching that i'll tell you a little bit of a horror story about later that didn't mean that it got produced that didn't mean that that i had my first adaptation i did get paid to write a couple of drafts of the script but most often your hollywood dreams are going to lead to some kind of ultimate disappointment the money part is important because if you don't get paid, you can't, you don't have the space to do the work. But even if you were rich, the money would be significant because it means the approval of the people who can bring your vision to the screen. They're willing to invest in you. So even if you did not care about the money, money is important. And even if you took money off the table completely, you want a movie, you want an episode of a TV series, you want real actors and directors and art directors and, you know, composers to cluster around what you've done and bring it to life. The idea that you have to go through these hoops to get that and the hoops are real. So I feel sorry for anybody who works in Hollywood just for the money. Also for the money. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's great, but ultimately you have to make decisions about how you want to spend your life. And money is a lot better at removing pain than increasing pleasure. I'd rather sit in a hovel watching television on a tiny screen with my family around me than sit in a mansion watching a a wall-sized screen of a movie by myself. So the thing that's important, you know, is doing things for the people I love, being with the people I love, being able to express myself in these ways. And you want to do it in such a way that money is also part of the package. And that means you have to learn how to take these meetings. You know, so learn how to present yourself. Yes, you do. 
and you have to present sort of the best version of yourself without completely wearing a mask, which is what Rodney talked about, sort of right. losing touch with who you are, pretending to be some other person. This is what led to my awkward moment. It's not, so, right. it's not so much a horror story, but it's a very awkward moment that still haunts me. And the thing that haunts me about it is that I was not being myself. Okay. I was trying to fit in and be like, you know, my picture, what I thought I should be. So anyway, it's back early 2000s. And we're pitching my novel, The Good House, which is a haunted house possession novel. And the, the producers are Blair Underwood, Nia Hill, and D'Angela Proctor. And they were trying to get the attention of their agency, which apparently is a thing you have to do, not just before you ever get to the executives or the studios, your own agency has to, to give a damn, right? So we were at a major, major agency pitching along with the director, who was Forrest Whitaker. So we're, and so everyone's in, Blair Underwood's there, Forrest Whitaker's there, these ladies are there, Steve and I are there. We're going through a pitch. I don't know what made me feel like I needed to try to make glib small talk or why this even came up. But at some point I just burst out with, well, I knew that movie Battlefield Earth was going to be a dog. This is that Scientology movie that John Travolta was in, okay, a few years ago. I knew Battlefield Earth was going to be a dog when I saw John Travolta signing posters at the Seattle SeaTac Hotel. And first of all, it's not even that funny a thing to say. <laughs> so as I'm thinking now, why did I even think that would be funny? But what made it even less funny is that Forrest Whitaker, who was literally sitting right next to me, was also in the movie Battlefield Earth. Okay, so rewind. Well, I knew Battlefield Earth was going to be a dog when I saw John Travolta signing posters at this. <laughs> I realized after I had said it, what I had done. So I had just enough time for a beat to pause, turn to Forrest Whitaker and say, but you were very good in it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was so embarrassed. And he nodded graciously, but he must have been thinking, okay, what is wrong with her? <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Rule number one, don't insult movies that the people you're pitching with have been in to their face at the meeting. Try that. Yeah, that was a bad one. I, I can think, well, geez. <laughs> if, that, if we're going to go there, I can think of worse stories. My most humiliating moment in Hollywood would be I was at a party and there was an actress at a party whose name I will not mention, who looked familiar to me. And I was in a conversation with her at one point and I said, I recognize you, but I, I can't figure out, you know, from where, why are you, there's something special. You're not just an actress, there's something special about you. And she said, yes, I was attacked and stabbed multiple times. And there was a movie made about my near-death experience. And I remember oh. then what it was. And my reaction was, oh, yeah, that's right. Great. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> no. Oh, and she looked at me and mm. I was the lowest slime crawling off the bottom of the ocean. I, I... Honey. Oh, my God. Thank I you just... for telling me that story to make me feel so much better about my bad <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm about to cry. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, you don't come back from that one. Yeah, there's no way to clean that one up. I don't even know what you do with that. No, you walk away and you leave that party relatively soon afterwards. And you realize that you make a commitment to always thinking before you open your mouth. Because I just reacted with relief for having my memory cleared up without the slightest consideration of how I was reacting would impact on the person I was, I was speaking to. You were in your head. I was just, totally in my head and yeah. in my heart. Absolutely. Just totally oblivious. And, and the I, worst. I think that is something that happens, especially for me, and I'll speak probably for other prose writers, is that the public-facing portion of screenwriting, while we do publicity and we do book events as authors, we're used to that, there's a bit more of a social component to screenwriting from the parties that Steve mentioned that sometimes results in work. Rusty Cundiff, the director of Tales from the Hood, was at a party with Spike Lee. Spike Lee said, what you got? That's how we got Tales from the Hood. <laughs> okay. So business happens at these parties. There's the pitching, public face. You can write a book in, in your basement and no one even knows your name. No one even knows your real name. Okay. You can, in Hollywood, peep, you it's meetings. It's taking meetings constantly because these people need to know, can they work with you? You know, if they, if, if they run into a problem in production and need a rewrite because they can't get a windmill, you know, even though your script is called the windmill, <laughs> you know, that's a reference to a movie with that the state state in Maine. Yeah. yeah. The old windmill was the, the old it. windmill. That's right. It, it's not even that they can't get an old windmill. There was no windmill at all. Yeah, someone asked if you haven't seen that movie at some yeah, point. Hysterical. Earnestly yeah. asked, does it have to be a windmill or like, why well, do we need it a It's collaborative. Yeah. It just is. You know, you are working with a team. And if you can't live with that, you're probably looking for a different medium. You know, you want to write short stories because you you can get short stories published exactly the way you wrote them. You know, just, you know, this without changing a word. And there's your story. That is exactly what it is. By the time even you get up to a book, the chances are pretty good that the, that the editors and the publisher are going to have some input on things, you know, in, in there. And it's going to be harder for you to get that contract that says, no, you're going to publish it exactly where I wrote it, every word. But by the time you get to a movie... There are people who, you know, if, if you're not using your own money, you better believe that the people who, who are giving you that money want some input into where their millions of dollars are going and how you spend. That's just, you know, wouldn't you if that was your money? And so then it, it, that's just the way it happens. The actors and the director and everybody else, the producers, they want to be able to hang out. If you, if you read stories about the productions of movies, these people are hanging out together after work. After they get to finish the shooting, they go out and, you know, have dinner together and go dancing or go have fun. So it's, it's like a movable tribe. You know, you, all these people come together and for a while, they're best friends. And, and one thing Brian Fuller mentioned is, and he's told us horror stories too, that just are infuriating, infuriating, like face-to-face -face treatment. I'm not going to go into his stories, but it's, you know, there are plenty of wonderful people, wonderful executives and producers and directors, but I do think that sometimes because of that stress level, because the stakes are so high, especially when something is in production and, the, and that money is being spent, some of these personalities pop out yeah. and it's not pleasant. They're not pleasant people. They're shouters. When's the last time you worked on a job with someone who shouts at employees, 
right? So it's a, it can be a different environment depending on, on who's leading it. And that is, is hard to deal with too. So Steve, I'd love for you, if you're ready, I know this is a difficult story to tell, to talk about what is your genuine Hollywood horror story. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it and uh, I'll gloss over as much as I can, but I have to hit the most important points on it. I guess my daughter, Nikki, was about three or four years old at the time, but I was just breaking into Hollywood. I'd done a few, a couple of television scripts, but, you know, furthering my career, making money was very, very important. And I got a call that there was a television series called Friday the 13th that had seen my script for the Twilight Zone, I believe it was, and they were interested in me pitching to them. Now, the, the premise of Friday the 13th was that there was a haunted curio shop and if you bought an item in this curio shop, pawn shop, and took it home, it would, it would force you to, to commit multiple murders. And then the owners of the shop were, who inherited it had to try to go out and chase down the people who'd bought stuff from the previous owner before these curses had a chance to come true. So I created a, uh, a story. I was trying to think about this. And I created a story that I thought would fit what they needed, but also be a story that had enough content had enough actual thematic context and and depth to it that I could feel I was doing something I could be proud of so I went in there I was on the lot over Paramount and they you know offered me the the bottle of of, of Perrier like they do and then you know there's a little small talk and then they say well what have you got for us and I pitched them a story called Purple Heart about a unit in Vietnam that is being led by a sergeant who this who the men love and an officer who's right right out of West Point who the guys hate and the officer is clumsy and stupid and he gets the sergeant killed and one way or the other it turns into a story of vengeance and madness and murder with a subtext that I thought was was useful I won't go into it too much because I intend to write this story one of these days and when I was finished and I was very proud of what I'd done, the executives looked at me and they said the following thing. They said, we can't do that story because if we did that story, people would think this show was about something. And our only justification for doing a mass murder every week is that this is pure entertainment. And I sat there. That's literally what they said to me. I sat there and I listened to that and I realized first that these people and I did not see the same world at all. And secondly, that I needed them to say yes. I needed the money. And I sat there and they said, no, we can't do that show. What else you got? This is where it's critical to have back pocket ideas, something to fall back on. I didn't have one. So I just started pitching possible notions of ideas. And luckily, if my heart isn't in it, I can't do a good job. I just can't. And they said, well, you know, come on back. If you've got something, doors open anytime. Shook my hand. I walked out of the office and it was like walking out of an opium den. As soon as the sunlight hit my face, I realized what I had almost done in terms of that and I heard 
deep in my heart, I heard the voice of the little boy inside me, the little creative kid inside me saying, Daddy, why did you have me talking to those terrible men? Don't you love me? And I realized that I had betrayed the most sacred part of myself. It was like taking my little boy and putting him out on the corner, turning tricks. And that voice that had always been with me since childhood, it's the source of my creativity, stopped talking to me. Ooh. I, writing became a struggle for the first time in my life. I just, I just couldn't. Every time I did, I tried to write, I remembered how I had betrayed myself. And months went by, and it was just bad. I'd never felt pain like that. I'd never been separated from myself in that way. And so I began a program. It's like, how can I heal myself? And this, I guess, the story that I'm going to tell you about what I did to do that is, I guess, it's my gift for the readers, to the listeners today. I decided to use a hypnotic technique that I'd used with clients at the time. I'd studied hypnosis. I have a master hypnotist certificate in Ericksonian hypnosis from the Transformative Arts Institute in, in Marin, California. And so what I would do is visualize a place that was safe and that I loved as a child, which turned out to be the beach. And I would envision going to the beach and I envisioned taking toys to the beach and I was hoping that, that I would be able to envision my child self being there. No, no, he, he wasn't there. And I did this every day for weeks. I would envision the beach. I would, I would spend a half hour to an hour visualizing the beach and I would take toys and I would take food and I would take other things down there. And he never appeared. Then I started leaving the toys there and going away. And after a couple of weeks of that, I noticed that the toys had been rearranged and eventually some of the food, a couple of bites had been taken out of the food. So something was happening and I kept going there. I kept it up months, months out doing this. And then finally I looked North along the shoreline. And the beach was deserted, but I could see a tiny human figure on the horizon. It was my ego visualization of my own child self. And every day I would go back there and slowly that little tiny figure got closer and closer to me until I could see this little boy. And he seemed so sad and so lonely and I just kept begging him, you know, hey, come on, it's safe, you know, come, come to me. And, and he didn't come any closer. I didn't approach him. I didn't try to force it because this is all stuff happening in my head, trying to, to heal something that I had damaged. It was, it's a representation of that. And finally. He came close enough that I could really see his face and see the tears streaming down his face. And I stood up and I did not step toward him. I just waited. Nothing happened. And then I packed my stuff up and, and left. 
And every day when I came back, I noticed he would get just a little bit closer and then a little bit closer. And then finally, I felt like the time had come and I took one step toward him and he ran away. And the next day I stood still. Then a couple of days later, I took another step toward him and he stayed where he was. And the day after that, I took a step toward him and he took one step toward me. And then over the days that followed, I would take a step and he would take a step. And I was just, you know, just crying my eyes out at this point. We were both crying. And we finally, you know, he took a step and I take him. And finally, we were no more than a few steps away from each other. And he, he took a step and then he ran toward me and threw himself in my arms and wrapped his arms and legs around me. And he said, oh, daddy. Where have you been? I've been so scared. And I said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry for what I did. I swear to you that I will never leave you alone again as long as I live. And I have done everything I can to keep that promise, that that, that little kid, that vulnerable little boy inside me, that is the part that has all the creativity. I've done all I could to keep him safe, to be sure that he only has wonderful playmates like you, sweetheart. You know, you've been a wonderful playmate and you love that little boy inside me and you protect him. And he has given me millions of beautiful words to write, to put down in books and for television. And all I know is that we have a sacred obligation to protect our hearts, a sacred obligation to protect the child self within us. And if we don't, no one else will. And if you make a commitment that whatever you have done to embarrass or lessen yourself in that way, or no matter how anyone has hurt you, if you are willing to stand up and take responsibility and say, no more, never again, I will stand between my heart and anyone who would harm it. You know, you don't have to win the fight, but you have to fight. You have to be willing. To. That's the single most painful story that I have. I did it to myself and I will never do that again. Honey, thank you for sharing such a painful story. And there are a couple of things that jump out to me about it. The first is how easy it is to cross that line. Here you were at a pitch meeting. You were no doubt very excited about. You pitched a story you had put a lot of time and care into. They didn't want it, which, you know, that happens in a lot of pitch meetings. They'll just say they had their reason. But the reason they gave you put you at such odds with them philosophically that to continue pitching was a breach you would have had no idea existed before you walked into that room. I mean, there are people sullying themselves with full knowledge, like going into a meeting with people they know they don't respect or who do work they don't respect and, and intentionally almost crossing that line. But you unintentionally crossed that line and caused yourself great damage. And the second part, maybe more importantly, is for people who don't practice deep visualization and meditation. When you talk about those visits to the beach with your young self, 
the idea that you're just sort of experiencing this instead of guiding it. Because, you know, if you're inexperienced, you're thinking, well, I'm going to make the boy come out and talk to me. How does that work for people who haven't done it? And what's a way that they can just sort of practice it to get even a shred of the value uh, that you got over a great amount of time doing this? Well, thank you, sweetheart. And by the way, the, the, the virtual beach behind you, was that related to my story? Maybe unconsciously. Yeah, I'm thinking about <laughs> it that. No, no, I, I think it was unconscious then, okay. to be honest. So there is a technique in Ericksonian hypnosis called the parts party, where you act as if the different aspects of your personality are like guests at a garden party. You know, anxiety meet passion. You know, adventurousness meet meet fear. You know, and you you realize that any behavior you have ever expressed in your life was an attempt of some part of you to keep you safe, to express yourself, you know, that, that some part of you considered that to be a positive thing. So that by inter, by it, letting the different parts of you talk to each other and work it out, it's, it, it's a, a content-free therapeutic technique where a therapist will drop you into a trance, have you do that. They might not even ask you what the problem is. They'll just give you this. So the idea being that the visual symbols that we create to represent things have deep significance. So if you can, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I don't visualize. Well, how do you know what color your car is? You know, that visualizations are not as sharp and clean as it looks like a photograph. You know, I can see this. No, no, no. It can be a vague impression. It could be a feeling. It could be a kind of a sound. But there's something that you would use to represent this thing. So my attitude is that the child within you is always there. And, and the, there was a period in your life in which that child, in which you were, no matter how abused you were later, you might have been later, there was a point at which you were protected and loved. Children who are not protected and loved die. It's called failure to thrive. Babies that are not held and cuddled and cooed over, they die. So if you connect with a young enough visualization of yourself, you can, you can get underneath abuse and damage and neglect and prejudice and all those things that happen. You just have to figure out what the youngest part of you is. Then what you do is, as an adult who has resolved the problems that, that hurt that child, you then can say, well, my parents did not do a good job, but I am now my own mother. I am now my own father. And you can literally visualize yourself holding that child and saying, I will protect you. The ancient child technique, which is a visualization exercise that we've given to people in several of our different courses, is designed to connect the child visualization with your deathbed visualization, how you're going to be on the other side of life when you've only got a few breaths left and you're not going to lie about yourself anymore. You don't have any reason to try to look good. You're not trying to get anything from anyone. You're trying to be at peace with your own soul. That self has all the wisdom that you've hidden from yourself because you were afraid to be an individual, let's say. And if you can get the child part of you that has all the enthusiasm and the creativity to talk to the elder part of you, all you have to do as an adult is get out of the way and listen to the two of them talk and they'll resolve it. Now, I had not fully developed the ancient child at this time. I knew about the child part, but I didn't have the other part. So the idea being that if you have damaged a part of yourself, first make a commitment that you will never do that again, and then visualize that part of yourself 
you know, slow your breathing, close your eyes. You know, I, I like to do it. I do it every morning. So every morning I sit cross-legged on the bed and I close my eyes and I slow my breathing and I listen to my heartbeat, which forces me to, to get very relaxed, to, to keep my posture so that my skeletal structures is holding my, my meat up. I'm not doing it with muscle tension. And if you get relaxed enough, you can feel your pulse, you know, in your neck, you know, in, in your body, you can feel your, your heart beating. And that is, is very relaxed. It's, it's like a form of whole body qigong in that sense. And I'll follow my breathing, follow the heartbeat, and then I'll begin to visualize. And I always visualize the child that I was. Sometimes I'll visualize a mentor. Like I spend a lot of time visualizing Don Callan speaking to my little, my child self, because I want to download wisdom from one of my elders who has passed on. But it's, it doesn't, you don't have to have a, this doesn't have to be anything metaphysical. It's pure, it works perfectly well, purely psychologically. But if you can, if there is a part of you, your creativity, your, your fear, your love, your sexuality, whatever, if you can create a representation of it, you can then ask it, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? How should I be? How have I disappointed you? What should I do more of? Then you shut up and listen. And if you get quiet enough, you will hear that part speaking to you. That's kind of the basic version of it. I did kind of a more advanced version of it because I could not force that part of me to come and sit in my lap because I had tried to force it to be creative. So it was a matter of just humbling myself and showing up there every day with everything I thought he might love. That you like this nice place? Do you, you know, is the weather nice that I created here, you know, in my mind? How about these toys? You used to like these toys. How about this food? You used to like Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken. Just about, you know, and just extraordinary. It's just extraordinary the level of work that you're able to do. I mean, I've tried the ancient child and I do like that. I also use a beach because I grew up in Miami. I love the beach. I tend to picture myself in a wheelchair mm. as a much, much, much older woman. Yes. And, and my current self is pushing the wheelchair while I'm holding kind of a toddler version of myself in one arm. That's beautiful. To, yeah, that gives me the image and I feel a degree of peace from that image, but I'm not gonna lie and say I've had anything as like profound as you well, and I don't think you either, sweetheart. Okay, you know, wow. You found, you found the tools that you needed to be able to function in the world. I, I just honestly, I didn't start with as healthy a foundation as your parents were able to give you. I was blessed. That, that is an absolute blessing. And, and it, it, I'm so happy for you. I would not want you to have had to go through the things that I went through to feel safe enough to feel healed enough to be able to be honest about what I think the stories I want to tell. That's part of what I'm going through right now is asking myself, who would I have been without the damage, mm. without the fear, without, you know, the, if I'd had a father, if racism had not impacted my life, if I'd been smart enough to stay in college and get my degree so I didn't have an inferiority complex about that, if I'd been more athletic, if I felt more comfortable with girls or whatever it is that I had a negative reaction to that might've created some negative behaviors that led to some negative results. And I asked myself, 
if I had been raised by a tribe that had loved me and sheltered me and cared for me and encouraged me to be a griot or a shaman, what, what would I have said? What would I have done? What is the most natural expression of myself? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. All I know is that I, I honestly believe that it is down that road that I'm going to find the answers that I seek that'll take me to the next level of what it is I need to do with my life. I hope, listeners, you understand the degree to which this is really what our podcast is all about. Life writing, write for your life. You might be listening going, well, what is this? Is this uh, psychology or is this writing? Uh, yes, it is both. It is about the writing and the craft, and it is also about the care for the artist, which is the package we have created with our entire subscription course, which is called lifewritingpremium.com. It is craft and it is the life of the writer. And that's why we've really modeled all of the, these podcasts, every guest we have, whether it's N.K. Jemison, Patton Oswalt, Brian Fuller, what do you do? to live a balanced writer's life. If there are only two questions in art, who am I and what is true? Those are the same questions you have in philosophy. Whatever it is that you write about characters is going to flow out of what you believe about what human beings are. And the only human being you have to really examine closely is yourself. So the way you feel about yourself is going to reflect everything you do with characters. And the way you feel about the world is going to affect the way you plot and plan and you know, the plot in many ways is the way the universe responds to the efforts of your character as they try to heal and complete themselves and grow. So Life Writing Premium is designed to be a year of you making a commitment to write one sentence a day, every day. That's your commitment. If you will listen to one segment per week and commit to writing one sentence every day, in a year, we can completely change your relationship to your writing and change your life in that way. There's a lot more, there's, there's depth to it. You know, there's all sorts of material and interviews and assignments. But if you will just commit to writing one sentence a day and listening to one audio per week, we can change you because we're going to give you tools that you might have had to go to a dozen different places to get. This isn't just a writing class. It's also a class of what is it to be an artist? What is it to survive as an artist? Living a healthy life. How do you, how do you make money? How do you, how do you work every day? How do you keep a relationship going? How do you keep your, your, your physical energy vibrant and alive so that you can do this work? All of that. All of that. All of that. All of that. Where is, what's the URL for that, sweetheart? www.lifewritingpremium.com. And we're just happy to share who we are and little snippets from our course and this podcast every week. I mean, this is what it, we are. This is who yeah. we are. This is what True. we teach. The only other way we can communicate is the Life Writing Premium people. We meet with you guys once a month. Some, a couple of you will submit stories and we'll actually analyze your stories, life writing style, while we answer questions about the entire process and, and our lives and our work. It's just our way of giving back and getting as close as possible to being the, the teachers that we need to be in order to continue moving ourselves forward. You masters teach, they learn, they do. We're trying to do all of that. And we're trying to pass it on to you as soon as we learn it, because I know <laughs> none of, nobody has all the years we've spent 
trying to uh, learn all these lessons. Uh, we don't. We definitely do not want you having to go through what I went through. What no, went through. no, no, no. no you, you guys, you know, I hope you can tell that we we genuinely care about you. That that you you send us emails, leave notes on the site, letting us know the subjects you'd like us to talk about. Tell your friends about this. Please leave reviews. If you think that we're doing something of value here, share it. Send yes. people to lifewritingpodcast.com yes. and, you know, and help us to understand how we can serve you because that is really why we're here every yeah. week. And you can also leave us a voicemail at lifewritingpodcast.com. Well, yeah. this has been, again, just great talking to you as always, honey. I know we live in the same house, but in the podcast space, it's just a little bit different. I really enjoy this time with you too. And for all of you who are listening, Go on, write your sentence. Write your sentence even if you're not in life writing premium. Right. And make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. It's your life. Live it. And with that, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.